Father, we thank you for this evening, and we're grateful for the opportunity to take up uh, these very interesting questions. We thank you for your word um, that provides uh, light for us with respect to dark places, and we pray that um, our discussion will be fruitful to um, our walk with our Savior and uh, with the upbuilding of his church, and we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. All right, you've got, I hope, uh, your copies of the question uh, uh, list. Um, we had a flurry of uh, questions come in at the very last minute. So, um, but we have lots of interesting subjects. Uh, so let's dive right in. We're going to start with um, uh, the section on theology. And um, the first question is, is there an eschatological position that is generally accepted within our ranks, um, broadly defined as Reformed, Presbyterian, or PCA in particular? Are we premillennial, postmillennial, or amillennial? Are there more options than these, and do supporters of each view justify their view using Scripture? So let me introduce the subject a little bit. Um, here we're generally under the... Uh, theological heading of eschatology. And eschatology is it just means a word about the last things. Um, in theology, it's the last things concerning an individual's life, as well as the last things with respect to this age and the church. Um, its focus is the hope that we have in Christ the vindication of God's purpose in creation, uh, the consummation of his redemptive plan, and it includes uh, death, uh, the kingdom, the coming of Christ, resurrection, eternal life, judgment, and heaven and hell. So it's a, a big area. And there's a peculiar literature that addresses these subjects that makes the subject hard. It's called apocalyptic literature. Uh, it's from the word that's used, the Greek word, that just means revelation. Uh, the, if we were to transliterate the name of the book of Revelation, it would simply be the apocalypse. Um, and it means an unveiling. Um, the, uh, and um, in, in the intertestamental period, Jewish literature was very much focused on the questions of a remnant of those who would be preserved and uh, the failure of Israel overcome, establishing the kingdom, uh, bringing about a cessation of prophecy. And it, it, the goal was always to make sense of the present in light of a future catastrophic intervention of God in some way. And that literature is usually wild with all kinds of imagery. Uh, the, the canonical scriptures have elements of apocalyptic. In the Old Testament, you see elements of uh, that kind of literature in the uh, prophetical books of Joel and Zechariah. Uh, in some of the chapters in Isaiah, there's characteristically apocalyptic and then the book of Daniel offers the fullest, uh, most mature form of that literature in the Old Testament. 
In the New Testament, uh, apocalyptic elements can be detected in Matthew 24 and 25, uh, in Mark 3, in 2 Thessalonians 2, 2 Peter 3, and Jude 14 and 15. But again, one book in particular is uh, apocalyptic preeminently, and that's the book of Revelation. So that's the field that we're working in here. This particular question has to do with uh, uh, Revelation 20 and the thousand years that's in view there and the different ways that folk have um, uh, tried to understand the book of Revelation. The earliest view we see historically is premillennialism. And um, premillennialism um, was uh, the view of many of the church fathers. It was also historically the view of radical sects that grew up, uh, kind of on the outskirts of Christianity. It was first simply known as millenarianism, uh, but the pre came into uh, the nomenclature later on in the history of the church. There were premillennialists in the 17th century, Alstead, Newton would be examples. And then uh, George Elton Ladd in the 20th century was a, a noteworthy premillennial scholar. But there, there aren't many premillennial, premillennialism people simply speaking around uh, these days. That view has fallen into disuse to some degree. Um, the second one following on that then would be dispensationalism. And dispensationalism uh, has a form of premillennialism. Um, the, the general scheme of premillennialism is that um, there's a cataclysmic intervention coming. Christ will return. There'll be a thousand-year reign of Christ where Christ is immediately ruling on the earth. Uh, Jews will be converted to Christ, the curse removed from nature. Uh, there'll then be a final rebellion that uh, is stirred up, it is crushed, and from that point on, then the resurrection and the judgment. The, um, now, dispensational premillennialism adds some interesting features uh, to that. Uh, on the dispensationalist view, which grew up really in the 19th century. Uh, the, the peculiarity of it comes from uh, Edward Irving. Uh, it's seen in the Plymouth Brethren in England, uh, John Nelson Darby. And then in the United States, of course, dispensationalism had a very powerful impact on all kinds of denominations, including the Presbyterian denomination um, uh, in the uh, late 19th and early 20th century. Um, here, the church is uh, understood to be a mystery that's written about only by Paul. Otherwise, God's movement in redemptive history is through seven dispensations where God defines a period whereby he intends to work for the salvation of his people. And each period has a different principle of organization. Dispensational premillennialism then sees the second coming in two stages. 
first, there's a secret rapture where Christ comes and he takes his people. They just disappear. And this is, of course, the popular uh, series um, uh, taken away. Um, and the books from the late 20th century, what were they called? Um, Left Behind? Left Behind, the Left Behind series, yeah. Um, and so, you know, that if you're a Christian air airline pilot, you just suddenly disappear from the cockpit and the plane crashes and it's all kinds of chaos. So there, there's the secret rapture. Then there's seven years of tribulation that follow. And then the second coming of Christ. So, and that's the cataclysmic event. And like regular premillennialism, he is going to rule for a thousand years, fulfilling all the Old Testament prophecies to Israel. Uh, then there'll be a last rebellion and judgment, as in typical premillennialism. Uh, next, there's postmillennialism. Um, Postmillennialism has there being a thousand-year reign, or a symbolical thousand-year reign. That postmillennialists dis disagree on the particulars there. But what you have is the millennium is going on right now, and gradually the world, the church is going to uh, conquer the world for Christ. Um. Christ is reigning immediately right now through the gospel and through gospel institutions. But when the period of the millennium closes, Christ will be returning to a world that's largely Christianized. Um, this view is popular with the Puritans, uh, Whitby and Edwards. It was very popular in uh, the missionary movement and it was very, uh, it was a, there was a strong representation in a way in uh, the early 19th century Presbyterian theology in this country. There was a reawakening of postmillennialism in the late 20th century through the theonomy movement. Um, it, it had almost died out otherwise, except for in a few representatives. Curiously, there's also a liberal version of postmillennialism, and, and that is that um, the, the peaceful reign of Christ will largely be through the advancement of human civilization and um, that Christian people will be responsible for that, but there'll be Christian people who are united around a gospel that's considerably bared back. Um, and... Uh, uh, Do doctrines uh, like Manifest Destiny that belonged to the early ages of this country was effectively a secular form of post-millennialism. And that was very popular, really, until World War I. And uh, uh, when you had to start numbering world wars, that pretty much blew secular post-millennialism out of the water. Um, and then finally, you have amillennialism. And uh, as you might guess, um, the ah means it's a negation of millennialism. Um, 
it's it's not entirely accurate, but usually people say amillennialism rejects a belief in a future millennium. Uh, actually, uh, amillennium says the millennium is now, right now, and that Christ is going to return at the end. So effectively, amillennialism is a form of postmillennialism. All amillennialists are postmillennials. Not all postmillennials are amillennials. And the distinguishing characteristic is that amillennialism believes that the church is going to reign spiritually throughout this age without having outward success uniformly, but rather ebbing and flowing in its outward success. But nonetheless, Christ is reigning and gathering his elect, uh, and he's going to return at the end of the age. So effectively, uh, amillennialism sees the church throughout the period as it looks right now, flourishing in some places, suddenly suffering under persecution in other places, uh, reformations coming and uh, the church being awakened again, and that that is going to be characteristic throughout this age until Christ returns. So, um, the uh, uh, the post-mill person thinks at some future date the millennium will begin because of this near conquest of the whole world for Christ. Um, The amillennialist believes that the whole of the interadvental period is the period of the millennium, however many years it may turn out to be. Um, But that uh, um, there's no reason in Scripture to think that uh, the church's life is going to be any different than the Christian life. And the Christian life is a, a fight, a battle. Uh, and there are times when you make great advances, there are t- times when you have setbacks. Uh, but faith is going to win in the end. Um, and that that's pretty much, uh, the, the, the sanctification of believers is pretty much the same story as the sanctification of the church and its growth. Um, Warfield, however, who's usually taken to be a post-millennialist, urged that um, amillennialism was in fact the Protestant, uh, historic Protestant view. Uh, uh, um, The amillennialism that you see in Herman Bovink and in uh, uh, Kuiper. And he believed that that was in fact expressed in the creeds of the Reformation, including the Westminster Standards. Now, Robert Dabney um, uh, had the view um, that the Westminster Standards were very careful not to speak where they weren't confident with respect to what Scripture had to say. And he wrote an essay about it, uh, lauding the instances of prudent moderation in the standards. And one of the instances that he gave of it was the caution that the assembly had concerning the millennium. Here's the way he put it. They were well aware of the movement of early millenarians and of the persistence of their romantic and exciting speculations among several sects. Our divines find that the scriptures uh, 
excuse me, our divines find in the scriptures the clearest assertions of Christ's second advent, and so they teach it most positively. They find Paul describing with equal clearness one resurrection of the saved and the lost just before this glorious second advent and general judgment. And so they refuse to sanction a premillennial advent, but what the nature and what the duration of the millennial glory depicted in the apocalypse they do not speak to. Here the assembly will not dogmatize because these unfulfilled prophecies are obscure to our feeble minds and it is too, the assembly is too modest to dictate a belief amidst so many different options. So um, the, uh, it, it would be very hard for our standards to be interpreted in any uh, premillennial way, but as to post and ah, um, it'd be very hard to distinguish. Um, there are, uh, there's one other view that often isn't recognized, and that's panmillennialism. Uh, and that's the view that everything's going to pan out in the end. Well, uh, there have it. Does anybody want to ask a question or follow up? Um, it all turns on, I, I will say the best uh, brief reading on millennial views that I know of is by Richard Gaffin. Uh, he gave us permission to transcribe his article, uh, and it's on our website. Um, and it was an essay he wrote for a book on theonomy, uh, critical of theonomy, and, and thus he discusses, in particular, uh, pre, post, and amillennialism. And the latter part of it is not only a brilliant um, argument in favor of amillennialism, in my judgment, it's also one of the finest brief treatments of understanding the nature of the Christian life that I know of, so that it's wonderfully edifying personally, uh, even if you're not particularly interested in the question of uh, the millennium. So, there you have it. Questions, comments, reflections? This uh, Aidens were willing to claim this question. Uh, have I addressed some of what you wanted to hear? I think so, Pastor Coffin. Thank you very much. All right, wonderful. Any questions from anybody else on this? Dave, I have a question. Uh, I'm just wondering, how important do you think it is Is there more to that? Chris, I, you suddenly cut out, I think. Can you hear me now? Yes. Uh -huh. Yes. How important do you think it is for Christians to have a position on this? I think it's, it's uh, sometimes tempting, at least for me, to, to throw up my hand because I really don't know uh, where I would come down on this. Um, well, then you should be a pan-millennialist. Well, do you remember what our speed... Oh, Chris, I lost you again. Uh, last thing I heard was RC. Can you hear me now? Yes. RC Sproul said that John Gertzner's position 
was that he was a pro-millennial. <laughs> but I, I'm just wondering, do you, do you think Christians need to have a position on this? I've, I've heard... I, I, I've heard... Yeah. I, I think uh, premillennialism and uh, dispensational premillennialism uh, introduce serious errors into the Christian life. And I, I, I would say, I, th- I think it's important not to be uh, any of the forms of premillennialism. Um, I think that, uh, oh, there are probably besetting sins for both of the other two. Um, Postmillennialism, especially in the hands of theonomy, had a tendency to be triumphalistic. And... perhaps fueled in part by the millennial views, prepared to use means for advancing the gospel that uh, I don't think Christ intended for the church. Um, On the other hand, uh, the post-millennialists would probably say that the besetting sin for amillennialism is uh, uh, apathy with respect to cultural issues and questions. Uh, I don't think that's intrinsic to amillennialism at all. Um, And I don't think that you need to believe that the whole world can be Christianized to be committed to fulfilling your calling to do good in the world during your time. Um, If I were to uh, sum it up, I think that postmillennialism is a form of perfectionism that finally undermines growth and grace. I think amillennialism, because of its realism about the way sin is in the world, um, is uh, um, much more attuned to a church not triumphant yet, but a church militant. And I think that's the church's... I, I think the church is the suffering servant in the world after the pattern of... Uh, her master, and th- she'll be relieved from that calling when he returns. But anyway, those are some corollaries. I I certainly uh, wouldn't suppose that um, uh, amillennialism or postmillennialism should be a doctrinal test for church officers. I, I would think it'd be very unfortunate if that were ever attempted. And remember, confessions of faith aren't attempting to set forth every doctrine the Bible sets forth. They're only setting forth a few of the important doctrines that are crucial for agreement um, on and, and uh, joint action on the part of um, the leaders of the church. Uh, the, the Bible teaches all kinds of things that aren't in our confession of faith and shouldn't be because that's not what a confession is for. It's not a confession of faith. It isn't sort of a, 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 a compact systematic theology. Um, it has a different function. Does that help Chris? Yes, sir. Very much. Thanks so much. Any if I could chime in, Dave. Um, yeah. I, uh, 
I would just strongly encourage folks interested, it's not exactly squarely on this topic, but your sermons on Second Thessalonians on the end times, understanding the man of lawlessness, um, uh, and the day of the Lord are, are just extraordinarily rich and full. All right. For folks, for folks interested. Thanks, Paul. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're still out in the ether somewhere. <laughs> some of the sermons don't work on the site for some reason, but I hope those no, do. No, <laughs> no. On our church website? Yeah, something about changes in system. Now, Wes has a way of recovering them. Uh, but when I put, the, I put, was trying to put together a list of all the sermons I'd ever preached, and uh, so I was going through all of that, and there were, there was a swath of them that no longer worked. In fact, if if any of you ever have that happen, be sure and let me know because we can get Wes to do his magic and and raise them from the dead. <laughs> um, all right, anything else on this subject? Then let's turn to question two. Why does a perfect God need or want uh, adoration? And the simple answer is, uh, a perfect God doesn't need adoration. Um, and uh, that's one of the most uh, important elements of the doctrine of God. In the old days, it used to be called uh, the doctrine of aseity. Um, it's the doctrine of God's self-existence, meaning that he is dependent upon nothing in any way in creation. And our confession of faith in chapter 2, section 2, puts this beautifully. Maybe I should have copied this out into the chat. Um, would you like me to do that? Let me see if I can quickly do it without um, taking too much time. Um, there it is. God hath all life glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself, and is alone in and unto himself, all sufficient, not standing in need of any creature which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is alone the fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and hath a most sovereign dominion over them, to do by them, for them, or upon them whatsoever he himself pleaseth. To him is due from angels and men, and every other creature, whatsoever worship, service, or obedience he is pleased to require of them. Um, it's very powerfully put. There's more to it, but it, it's filling out the picture, and I was I wanted to, just to focus on that language. This is rooted, for example, in what Paul said in Acts 17, 
before the Athenians at verse 24. God, the God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing that he giveth to all life, breath, and all things. So God doesn't need our adoration. And further, and we need to have care here, he doesn't want our adoration if the word is used in any way that implies need. And that's one sense of the word want. You know, in the old, older uses of the term, if I say, is he uh, wanting for anything, I would be asking, is he lacking something? And um, the, uh, now the word want has another sense, a sense of commanding. I want you to go to the store. I want you to make your bed. If the word want is used that way, then yes, God does want our adoration. That is his command to us, and that is his right, as we saw in the last part of that, that God has a most sovereign dominion to do over them, by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever he himself pleaseth, and uh, that it is our due um, to worship, serve, and obey as he's pleased to require of us. So that is the essence of the answer. But then the wonderful truth that we want to carry on with is this, that though that's true, God doesn't want or need our adoration. Since we were created to find our highest good in him. Our minds find their highest object of contemplation. Our hearts find their worthiest delight. Our wills find uh, the perfect rule of righteousness in him. His requirement that we adore him is for our good, not for his good. It is, the, uh, it is the complete and perfect fulfillment of our created nature. And it is the uh, pathway to human flourishing uh, according to God's grace and goodness. So uh, that's a succinct answer, uh, but I think that's the answer the scripture gives. Um, anybody a question or a comment or reflection on that? Well, you can come back to it if, if you like, but um, I'll press... Dave, yeah. Um, just uh, a personal comment. I find um, reading scripture and getting embroiled in all the troubles that we read in the Old Testament and um, then it corresponds to the all the troubles that we face in life and we get um, very concerned with our own troubles <laughs> um, and in scripture especially in the Psalms 
it, it refers to those, but then it always brings us back to the majesty of God and his creation and his providence and um, which kind of corrects us. And I think what you were just saying, um, it is for our good. We forget, we're weak, we, we're very self-centered, and to be reminded of um, the fact that he's in control, we aren't, and that we're supposed to trust in him is such a help daily as we read scripture to know that we aren't running things really and that we need to praise him for how he cares for us in every does that fit oh yes oh yeah 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 absolutely um the uh we i focused on the word adoration but um all other parts of the ways we're to respond to God, whether it's in thanksgiving and gratitude or uh, whether it is in uh, godly fear, all of those find a component in us that is uh, a blessing to either put sin to death in us or bring us more to life in God. Um, And so gratitude is absolutely necessary for us to flourish uh, and godly fear and so on. We could go on. Um, so, but, yeah, and gratitude leads us to adoration. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. In, in some ways, I mean, you, you could uh, think of it this way. Um, the uh, When we are filled with awe and wonder at the grandeur of a mountain range. Uh, That's not for the mountain's benefit. That's for our benefit. Um, It's bringing something out of us that is rich and deep and wonderful about the way we're created. The idea of curiosity, of wonder, of uh, all of those elements... um, and so God directing us to those things is part of the way he blesses us. It's not for his advantage. Other thoughts? All right. Um, question three. God created everything. So how did he not create sin? Well, uh, to be quirky... Sin is not a part of everything. That's the answer. Um, Sin isn't a thing at all. Sin is a volition of a human being contrary to the revealed will of God. Sin is a heart condition of a human being who has turned away from God. God created human beings as capable of sin, but human beings are the ones who bring sin into the world, and they're the only ones who could. Uh, They're the only ones capable of uh, having a volition contrary to God's uh, revealed will, the only ones capable of having a heart hardened and turned away from God. Um, 
Now, um, I, I think that is an entirely uh, biblical and appropriate answer. Um, it doesn't resolve every question we might have about it, but at least that part's easy. Since it's not a thing, God didn't create it, though he created everything. Our Confession of Faith uh, puts the matter this way in chapter 4 at section 2. After God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, endued with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness after his own image, having the law of God written on their hearts and, and power to fulfill it, and yet under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject unto change. That's the fact of the matter, and that's as far as the confession is willing to go, and that's because that's the fact of the matter that Scripture has revealed to us, uh, and not much more than that. Anyone a thought? Reflection? Comment? I could put that in the chat too. I bet that's a shorter piece. Um, but if you wanted to see that language, um, Questions, follow up, comment. <laughs> who, who is our blank person up there? <laughs> oh, that's C. Anderson's. For some reason, your name disappeared from the screen. All right, well, hearing none, then I'll press on. Um, The um, next one is Scripture Without Error. Uh, through many uh, translations, even unintentionally, are there places where the text could be corrupted. Now, um, that question in its two parts actually is asking two different questions. And that's the first element we need to fix our minds on um, is the scripture without error is not the same question is as can there be errors in translations or uh, texts be corrupted and to get at that you remember the first thing we say about the scripture uh, from Second Timothy three sixteen, is the Scripture is God breathed. It's a revelation that's breathed out from God. And a human being that He has appointed is the messenger of that revelation. And the you don't even need to ask the question: Can that err? Because God can't err. If God could err, then the scripture, his revelation of himself in the scripture could be erroneous, but 
God can't err. Um, so too, Second uh, Peter one twenty one. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So again, you can barely ask the question, uh, can that err, that prophecy? No, because he's carried along by the Holy Spirit. Can the Holy Spirit err? Can the Holy Spirit fail in the task to carry along that person so that they perfectly deliver uh, what God has revealed? And in uh, 1 Peter one twenty four, we see that uh, the uh, permanent um, abiding character of that word. Now, error would be something that causes it to crumble, to, to fail. But Peter says, all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flowers of grass, its flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord uh, remains forever. So, um, God's word, revealed through the prophets and the apostles, uh, cannot err. The second part of the uh, reality, however, is that that word is transmitted through um, uh, uh, this worldly means. First on, by memory. Second, by written copies. Uh, now there was an enormous effort because uh, the people realized the uh, infinite value of what they were doing to get it right. But yes, copyists could... And so in the texts that have... Uh, uh, been preserved throughout human history, we see that copyists have erred uh, in those texts. And, uh, but it's way less than you would have ever thought. In fact, there's no teaching of Scripture um, where there's any significant um, uh, failure to understand it because um, Copies are at odds with one another. No, no major doctrine of Scripture is undermined because of textual uh, deficiencies. Um, they're very, very minor uh, for the most part. Um, the um, one you should probably know most uh, of the, for example, in John the incident of the woman taken in adultery. There is a serious textual question about that. Uh, you can almost see it in the English text. If you read what leads into that story and then what follows from it, the story doesn't seem to fit there. And in some of the best texts that we have from the earliest periods, that story is not in John. In fact, it's kind of a floating story. It, 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 it sometimes is in different places in John, and sometimes, I, I think, in other Gospels at a different place. It's, only John's Gospel has it as, as we recognize it. And there are a few other things. There's a, 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 
a relatively significant one in, um, in I think, First John. Most of your English texts will uh, have a footnote that identifies these places for you. And if you've never noticed that, that is a proof of how rare it is. Um, so yes, uh, text copies may err, uh, translations may err, um, and, uh, but God's word never errs. And in God's providence, um, we have uh, a text that, according to the science of textual criticism, for centuries developing, we, we can have we, we can have a 99% confidence that the text we're reading in our English Bible is the text that was given by divine inspiration in Hebrew and Greek. Now, the, the, our confession of faith reminds us that the Hebrew and the Greek is what was inspired. And in any controversy in the church, the church has to return to the Hebrew and the Greek to be confident. Uh, but that translations are needed in the language of the people to which the scriptures go to. And um, it's possible that a, a particular translation is not so good and it needs to be improved. Uh, words change, for example. There are words used in the authorized version, the, the so-called King James, which don't, don't mean the same thing in English anymore. And uh, so that you could be seriously misled uh, in the reading of it if you didn't know that the word meant something else earlier on. So, summing up, uh, God can't err. Um, what Scripture says is what God says, therefore Scripture can't err. But the conveyance of Scripture to us through texts, through copies, um, through manuscripts, and in the work of translation, yes, errors can creep in there, but we have a very high degree of confidence that uh, there's nothing in our Bible that is of any significance uh, that even qualifies to, for concern about an error. Um, and that's typically the testimony not only of conservative people. Um, for anybody who knows the science of text transmission and textual criticism, uh, they know that that's the case. So, let me stop there. Um, any uh, concern, comment, question? All right, now I'm at a tipping point here. <laughs> um, I've got three more questions. Um, and uh, question five came in today. Uh, Questions six and seven came in last week. I feel like I ought to try and give priority to the questions that came in earlier. Um, so uh, I'm going to see if I can skip on and get to those. and uh, uh, But maybe I can come back. So question six about the National Partnership. This is a, a, a group within the PCA of ministers and ruling elders largely and the commotion around what is dubbed Presby Leaks. Uh, this is 
pages and pages of electronic communications that, that this group had that uh, somebody got a hold of that wasn't a part of the group and published it abroad. Um, do I have any insights as to controversy of any importance, etc.? Um, well, so national partnership is what they uh, think of as a, uh, a, a group where they are trying to, by their lights, do what is good for the church and to organize politically to try and accomplish that. It's a membership group. Um, and uh, in addition, uh, there was a secrecy element. Most people seem most upset about the secrecy element. By my light, that's a minor concern compared to what I think any of these groups do that is um, uh, very harmful to the church and its witness, and that is fostering a party spirit. Um, I am firmly opposed to having such organizations in the church, and I am deeply saddened by the thought that Presbyterians should doubt the wisdom of our Lord's government as he established it in favor of human contrivances. The church group that you're a member of with respect to the government is the section on the local level, the presbytery on the regional level, and the general assembly on the national level. That's the group that you're a member of, and it's that group that you're to work with to brothers, even if they don't think the same way as you, we all have the same confessional commitments to our government and discipline. And um, the uh, there have been many such groups. There's another. There's one that's sort of on the conservative side called the Gospel Reformation Network. Now, they claim, well, we've never been secret. Well, that's fine, but I don't think. My, I don't care one way or the other about the secrecy. The, the point is, you're organizing separately from the institutions that God appointed for that purpose in the government. The former uh, Presbyterian, what was uh, PPLN, Presbyterian, I can't remember what, I can only remember the acronym. Uh, that was probably more on the left center side of the church on the other hand, there was concerned Presbyterians, which would have been on the right center. All of these groups end up, whether they're secret or not, as a threat to the good of the church. Why? Well, my conviction is this. In my view, a church, a court of the Church of Christ, should never be reduced to us and them. It is only we. Anything else is a stark violation of the gospel and a capitulation to worldliness. Many have attempted to justify these networks, justify these groups as networks of like-minded folk working together for the good of the church. But it seems to me that such networks almost always devolve into strategies for pre-committed voting blocks. And this is destructive completely to the government of the church. Every commissioner to a meeting of a court has a scriptural obligation to come to that court committed to listening to the debate 
and if compelling arguments are set forth contrary to his current views, he has an obligation to change his, his position in light of the deliberations. The idea that commissioners would follow social media instructions as to how to vote or through any other means is, in my view, abhorrent. What I have urged is essential, I think, to the functioning of the deliberative assembly that biblical Presbyterianism sets forth as liable to direction, both through reasoned biblical argument and by the immediate work of the Holy Spirit. Pre-committed votes are a profound corruption of our biblical order and an arbinger of our dissolution if they continue unchecked. So um, I haven't read uh, the uh, Presby Leaks material and won't read it. Um, gentlemen don't read other gentlemen's mail. <laughs> That's what's famously said. Uh, I, I, I think the beginning of World War II. But uh, I, don't, I don't need to read their mail. I don't care what they're saying in private. Uh, I don't think they should be doing any of this stuff, and uh, I don't need to read their mail in order to have that conviction. <laughs> Any thoughts, reflections, uh, comments? Well, I've got... Um, I'm going to try and, in six minutes, do question eight. <laughs> Do you think we should keep using the term evangelical to describe our theological distinctives? I used to use the term unapologetically, sometimes adding reform before evangelical because the term becomes so synonymous with Arminian, but now it's become synonymous with something else and it seems less imposed by others as a term of derision for their, it, and, it, and, and it seems less imposed by others as a term of derision for their political enemies than it does uh, a, a tribe, tribal badge of honor for those who use it. Um, well, the the term evangelical ha has changed over time. At the time of the Reformation, it just meant gospel of the gospel, and it comes from the event, uh, evangelion, the Greek word meaning good news. Uh, it's been used as a party, a conservative party in the Church of England. Um, but in this country, um, let me do this very quickly, be patient. Uh, the major divisions between Christians, professing Christians, uh, in the 19th century were differences between denominations. And Christians were divided over the theological distinctives of their denominations. In the late 19th century and early 20th century, something radical happened. German higher criticism came in to the country and uh, undermined confidence in the doctrine of Scripture. And a liberal theology arose, partly uh, informed by that uh, quasi-secular post-millennialism we talked about, um, they wanted to say we have got God is our, everybody's father and we're all his children. Uh, we should not be divided by um, theological niceties and doctrines. 
Um, but we should all be united in trying to do good and make the world a better place for human beings to bring the kingdom of God on earth. And suddenly in denominations, you had one group of Methodists who were liberal and were abandoning the gospel, and another group that were still holding on to the gospel with their Methodist distinctions. The same for the Episcopal Church, the same for the Baptist Church, the same for the Presbyterian Church. Now, suddenly, uh, Orthodox Christians found that they had more in common with some Baptist, Methodists, Episcopals, Lutherans than in, in those churches than they had in fellow Presbyterians. And, um, and so there was a huge controversy. Uh, the, uh, at first it was centered in the Northeast and um, it was run by highly educated um, ministers and, and uh, theologians. And they put together a book called The Fundamentals and uh, they were defenses of very basic Christian doctrine. B.B. Warfield wrote one of the little pamphlets. And the, uh, that became a movement in many different denominations to reassert those basic Christian doctrines as essential to Christianity. And in derision, they were called fundamentalists. They came to be called fundamentalists. Well, uh, that movement at first was um, pro-education, uh, highly academic, uh, pro-culture engaging, um, uh, had deep roots in the history of the church, and was committed to doctrinal standards. They were confessional people. But fundamentalism, the center of gravity moved to the south, south and the southeast, um, and uh, the character of the group changed. Partly it was through the influence of dispensationalism, but they became suspicious of uh, academic, academics in general. And they started to have only their own schools, and that was the beginning of the Bible school movement. They were uh, suspicious of culture engaging. The culture was a threat. We need to live like we're in enclaves. Um, the, uh, and they became suspicious of theology and doctrine and confessionalism. And they said, we have no confession but the Bible. And that became what was identified with fundamentalism. Uh, it was made great fun of through the Scopes trial. Um, and after World War II, there was a group of people who were fundamentalists, but who um, realized that that was a dead end, culturally and ecclesiologically. They started to go back to uh, major universities to study. John Gerstner was one of them. Uh, he went to Harvard, did his PhD there. Um, <clears throat> Harold Denzel, uh, Carl Henry, all advanced academic degree. And, and they started a magazine called Christianity Today. They were from many different denominations and they held to the fundamentals, but they did not think fundamentalism reflect, 
reflected Christianity, and they begin to use the word evangelical to describe their movement. They were evangelicals. Now, what's happened in the 21st century is that groups that were never a part of evangelicalism suddenly have co-opted that name. Pentecostals, uh, independent Bible churches, uh, old fundamentalist churches, the super uh, churches of, uh, like in Houston, um, they were never a part of evangelicalism through the 20th century. But now, in the public mind, in the press, that particular relatively small subdivision of what was evangelicalism dominates everybody's sensibility of what it is. And that group also happens to be particularly associated with uh, the religious right and with a new kind of Christian nationalism. And uh, I think it's tragic that they've co-opted the name but you need to realize that that word is being used in a way that historically it was not used. And for my part, I've long given up uh, calling myself an evangelical. I say I'm a confessional Presbyterian. And um, the, that's starting to get a little currency. For the most part, if I said that 20 years ago, people had no idea what I was talking about. But the idea of, of confessional churches is regaining some popular currency that they they think they ought to be defined by public statements of faith that can be criticized, can be defended, uh, and that that's the historic way in which the church understood its theology and discipline. So that's my answer on evangelicalism. Uh, I hope not too long-winded, but I, I despair of the use of the term. Um, and, you know, you, you could go straight out of the uh, any newspaper in the country and get virtually the same definition of evangelical, um, and it has to do with more how they voted on uh, particular uh, issues than it has anything to do with their religious life. Questions, comments, objections? Uh, I'd like to hear that answer in a three lecture series. <laughs> I would love to hear a lot more of the detail behind almost every sentence you said. It was <laughs> wonderful. Here, here. <laughs> well, maybe we can do it sometime. Um, but. Well, Deb, I'm not, the clock has gotten away from me. I'm not going to get to yours. And uh, the person who was interested in anthropology and uh, and these curious beings that are dug up, um, uh, we'll have to come back to that again sometime too. I'm sorry I didn't get through to it. But this has been a delightful time to me. I've really enjoyed it. I hope it's been useful to you all. And um, I would love you to question or criticize <laughs> You're, you're all very uh, uh, quiet, and, quiet and attentive, and, but uh, um, in any case, uh, I guess we should draw to a close. Anybody a last word on any of these subjects that you'd like to pitch in?
All right. Dave, just a, just a general thought that I think these gab fests in general are just very, very helpful. Mm. Well, I'm glad. Chris, thank you. It's a great format. Yeah. Wonderful. All right. Well, let me close this in prayer. Before I do, um, we, so we're off now until January sometime. It won't be the first week in January. Uh, it may not even be the second week, but sometime in January we'll be back in with that um, uh, the course title that Paul announced. Um, uh, I can't remember it off the top of my head, but we'll be looking at the uh, governmental and doctrinal standards of uh, the Presbyterian Church in America. Uh, it's d- designed... Uh, for uh, those who would contemplate being officers of the church, but it's not exclusively for them. In fact, I've taught the course several times now, and always has been the case, there have been many, many more people interested in the material than who were interested in being in office. It is fascinating stuff, and uh, so I hope you'll all uh, uh, join us for it. All right, let me pray. Father, we give you thanks for uh, the wonderful things that we have learned about you from your word. Uh, We thank you that you are the God of history and that you're working out your purposes and that those uh, purposes will certainly be fulfilled uh, to your glory and to the good of your people. And we pray you'd help us to be patient with respect to understanding the signs of the times and the more obscure portions Uh, uh, seeming to us of the word. We thank you that you are a God who is of yourself uh, fully sufficient and that it's out of that sufficiency uh, that you have created us and called us to love and serve you and in that to find our highest good. And we thank you that you hold yourself for us, out for us, that we might uh, be stirred by the wonder of who you are. Uh, We thank you that you are of purer eyes than to behold iniquity, that in you there is no darkness, no shadow of change. Uh, And we thank you that um, you are holy and righteous in all your ways, and that this world marred by sin, we freely confess, is uh, the uh, distortion that has come through our father Adam and which we um, participate in. But we thank you that you've not abandoned this world to sin, but that in fact uh, the light is overcoming the darkness and that there will be a glorious redemption uh, and that one day we will sin no more. We thank you for um, the history we've recounted and the ability to understand your ways in this world, and we pray that you'd help to make us faithful, especially to defending the truth of your word, um, even as we're humbled by its uh, this worldly transmission, yet marvel at your providence that you have never allowed in any age for that uh, light to be blotted out. Uh, We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.